So uh, somebody said to me the other day, oh, you're one of those born-again Christians, are you? Well, I'm interested to know what the other sort are, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, but I, I know what they're meaning because uh, it's used today in a somewhat derogatory way. When you talk about these crazy born-again Christians, the ones that uh, don't seem able to keep their feet on the ground, and uh, they're always talking about the fact that you need to be born again, you need to know Jesus, you need to come to faith and place your trust and hope in him. And of course, the reason why we use that term is not because we've made it up, but because Jesus said, you must be born again. Couldn't have made it any clearer. That was the statement that he made, and that's the statement that we want to look at and try and begin to understand a little bit more of this evening. And Justin, want to say thank you for reading the scriptures, superb section of scripture, and we rejoice in um, in, uh, in reading it uh, together. And of course, uh, there's uh, many, many messages that we could take um, from the verses that we have read this evening. Uh, of course, it's also fair to say that uh, sometimes we are reticent to actually listen to God's word and to uh, uh, take in and to understand when he says you need to believe. You know, you've got to believe in me if, if you want uh, to get to heaven. It begins by putting your trust and your faith and your belief in me. So Jesus makes it very clear and we understand that that's what uh, we need to look at. Um, not only was Benjamin Franklin a great statesman and an inventor, he did a lot of uh, research into electricity and I think one of his inventions, it might sound quite simple, but it was the lightning rod or the conductor, the lightning conductor, and he saved buildings from being burnt down by uh, discovering that electricity ran through them. And uh, he was not only a great statesman, a great inventor, but he was also a great writer, a great uh, correspondent. He enjoyed communicating with people, and he had the art of writing letters. Now, some people think that Benjamin Franklin was also a president of the United States of America. He wasn't, but many people seem to think that he was, and uh, that's uh, something that's sort of stuck in people's minds. One day, he received a letter and the letter had been written to him by a British chap. So uh, if you think of my accent for a moment, that will help you to understand the content of the letter or to get into the uh, theme of the letter. The letter was written to him by a British evangelist, a well-known one by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield uh, decided that this man uh, needed to be written to because there were some things that he was saying which were causing George Whitfield a problem. And Mr. Whitfield wrote and he said, I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world. Uh, George Whitfield went on and said, as uh, you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the, to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study and when mastered, will richly repay you for all of your pains. You see, the letter that George Whitfield wrote to Benjamin Franklin was possibly the most important letter that Benjamin Franklin ever received. Because he is explaining that you need to investigate something incredibly special, something incredibly transforming in our lives which is why Jesus said you must be born again 
and why the section of Scripture that Justin read to us was so important, because can we get it any clearer as to what the Christian message is all about, what the gospel is all about? So I guess one of the questions we could ask this evening is very simply this. Did Benjamin Franklin actually do what George Whitfield asked him to do? Well, we don't know the answer to that. Benjamin Franklin died at the age of 84 in 1790. And just before he died, he made a statement which would suggest that if he did think about the letter that George Whitfield had written to him, he rejected it totally. Because Benjamin Franklin declared that he was a convinced deist. Now you wonder to yourself, what are all these different names? Polytheistic, theistic, atheistic. So what's a deist? Well, a deist is a person who believes that there is an almighty creator, a God. But Benjamin Franklin was convinced that the God who created the universe had no interest in his creators, in his creatures, in his people, in you and in me. And so he went to his grave assuming that this creator God would receive him, but that he had never intervened in his life. And I want to tell you this evening, and I base this on God's word and my experience and the experience of many people that I have met and spoken with and had the privilege of talking to, that God does indeed intervene in our lives because he wants to, because he loves us. In fact, we can't keep him out. We discover that he intervenes and he communicates with us in so many different ways. And every time we pick up his word and every time we read it, God is speaking to us. And sometimes he's shouting at me anyway. As you pick up at his word and as you read it and as you listen to what he has to say. And therein lieth the problem because how often do we find ourselves not listening? You know, we're so busy with all of our lives, all the different things that are going on. So Benjamin Franklin believed in a creator God that didn't intervene in the lives of men. Benjamin Franklin adhered to what he described, and, and I can see the interest to a degree. He described his religion as doctrineless. How often we get confused and caught up with doctrine, perhaps. And sometimes we worry too much about the doctrine and we forget to read the scriptures and we forget to listen to what God has to say to us. And when we can have arguments, well, who loves arguing about doctrine? You know? And we can so often miss the point. And we need to recognize that God does indeed intervene in our lives. This kind of faith that Benjamin Franklin was suggesting believed that very simply, we needed to do our best to live a good life. If we could be morally acceptable to this creator God who never intervenes in our lives, then surely he's going to look down on us and say that we're good and that we're acceptable to him. George Whitfield urged Benjamin Franklin to seek the new birth that Jesus had spoken about here in John chapter 3. 
So what was it that George Whitfield wanted Benjamin Franklin to investigate? What specifically was it? What exactly is the new birth that he wrote about in his letter? What does it mean to be born again? Now, we could stop and have a show of hands and say, you know, what do you think on certain points? But I want you for a moment to consider, what does it mean for you? Does it mean absolutely nothing? You know, you're one of those people in the high street who say, oh my goodness, the folks at the Baptist church, they're those crazy born-again ones. You've got to avoid them. They seem to know what they stand for. And sometimes we discover very, very simply that it is a, a term that is used in a very unkind way. But what do you think it means? What does it mean to you? Do you understand what it really means to be born again? Do you understand the concept of the new life? Do you understand the concept of being a new creation? Do you understand the concept of your old life being left behind and your new life being taken up as Jesus lives within us? Because remember, as we've said so often, it isn't the fact that Jesus died on the cross that saves us. What saves us is the fact that he moves into our hearts and into our lives. Yes, of course, his death on the cross was absolutely vital for us. But it's not that that makes us a believer. It is the fact that he, through his Holy Spirit, lives within us. And it is he that begins the work of sanctification, of changing us, of making us to be the people that he would have us to be. Because in and of ourselves, in our natural state, we just don't get it. Some of us try very hard. Some of us try so hard we break out into sweat because we're doing our level best to live the life that we think we should be living. And as we look at this guy, Nicodemus, I think we're going to be discovering that there are a massive number of similarities between he and between us, and perhaps more than we've ever thought of before, more than we've ever recognized before. So I would suggest to you that what clearer section of Scripture could we turn to than the section that has been read to us this evening in John's Gospel, chapter 3. And of course, I would encourage you to uh, take uh, um, your Bibles and to read John chapter 3 again because there is so much that is contained in it. You'll need some time to focus on it if you want to come and talk to uh, myself or my wife or one of the other elders or deacons within our fellowship, then please make the point of doing so. Uh, the details for contacting us by email and phone and so on are on the bulletin. If you haven't taken one, then please take one. But of course, the section of Scripture, as I say, is very, very clearly presented to us. The new birth is one and perhaps the main topics of John chapter 3. There are certainly other topics that are contained there, but it is certainly one of the main ones, um, if not the priority that is given to us. Of course, uh, we learn a great deal about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We learn a great deal about his character. Uh, we learn a great deal about the urgency that there is in coming to faith in him, we recognize that he makes it very clear that there is a way forward. Even though sometimes people will say, well, there, you know, there's no hope for you. A number of people have spoken to me where others, unkind people, will say things like that. Well, there's no hope for you. Look what you've done in your life. And Jesus comes along and he doesn't point out what failures we are. He just says, you need to be born again. 
And if you put your belief and your trust in me, real belief in me, then I am able and willing and want to save you. And of course, we learn a great deal about this man, Nicodemus. Because what we're party to here in John chapter 3 is an interview. It's a conversation. It's quite intimate. This man has come to Jesus. He's got some real questions. He wants answers. (laughs) The answers that he got were not what he was expecting. But he came with a desire to find out more. And I hope and pray that if you're here this evening and you don't know what it is to trust in the God who created the universe, he was so big and yet he became small enough to dwell in your heart and in my heart through the power of his Holy Spirit and to change us and to take away fear and to take away anxiety. Do you realize the number of people in our world today whose lives are stunted and are failing because of anxiety alone? We've prayed for some. Those that feel that life has got nothing to offer, so they start to think about ways they can bring it to an end. And we live in a society now where if you go to your doctor and say, I want to bring this life of mine to an end, there's a good chance he'll listen to you. Instead of encouraging you to look to the fact that this life has been given to you to live to the full, to make the most of, and so on. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now there's a link between the verses in the uh, previous chapter, which we just want to look at very, very briefly, because you'll understand uh, what this link is. Because in chapter 2 and verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Notice I said earlier, real belief. Because already we now see in the verses directly before chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1, we discover that these words are contained. There were many who believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. This is Jesus. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in a man. In a woman. In other words, these people saw the miracles and they believed in the miracles, but they didn't believe in Jesus. And then we turn to chapter 3 and verse 1, and we see now the scene, the stage has been set as to why this guy Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Because we read verse 1, chapter 3 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, can you understand in that sentence who this man is? He's a ruler of the people. There were 72 of them that made up the Sanhedrin council. This man came to speak to Jesus and he was at the very top of the society. He was the one who made the rules, who determined how people lived. And the verse goes on into verse 2 and says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God 
is with him. So do you see the link that we have here? The miracles, the signs, the wonders that are being presented and shown. And Nicodemus comes along and he wants to know for the very same reason that these others have spoken as they have done. Initially, Nicodemus was attracted to Jesus because of miracles. He knew that Jesus was different because he says no one else could do this. This guy's got to be from God. There's got to be a link here. He knew that Jesus was different and he knew that Jesus had to have come from God because only God could do the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that were being presented toward him. And today, friends, people will say, even to me, if only God would show me a miracle, then I'll believe. Think about it for a moment. It's not that they want to believe in God. They want to believe in the miracle. But people are prepared to say that if only God would, would do this or he would do that or he would get me out of this financial mess that I'm in, whatever it is, then I'll believe. Then I'll put my trust in him. No, you won't. You won't even say thank you for what he's done because you won't recognize that it is God that has worked in your life. People are no different. That's the one thing that we discover as we read the scriptures. The heart the heart hasn't changed, nor has the gospel changed, nor has Jesus changed, nor has the message that he presents, nor has anything in Scripture changed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so church after church seems to make as many excuses as to why we can come to God in our own way. Oh, it's just in your own heart. You can come to God in whichever way you choose. And if you want to believe that when you die, you're just moonlight or starlight drifting around the universe, as somebody spoke to me recently. Nothing's changed. First one tells us that he was a Pharisee. And this tells us a great deal about how he lived his life. This is Nicodemus. And essentially, he lived his life by the strictest code you could possibly imagine. Rule after rule. Don't do this. Don't do that. Make sure you do this. Let's just read very briefly in uh, Matthew 23. So again, in the New Testament... Uh, the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 23. And this chapter helps us to understand a little bit about this man, Nicodemus. But at the same time, I hope it helps us to perhaps consider that not all of the Pharisees were in this particular category. The very first uh, seven verses explain this when Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens, 
hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. They make life miserable for people. But they themselves will not move with them one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries. Now, everyone know what a phylactery is. It's the Jewish. They would take the scriptures, roll them up into, uh, or fold them up into, into uh, little squares and then bind them in leather. And then they would strap them to their foreheads and to their arms and so on. So they make their phylacteries broad and big, you know. <laughs> My phylactery is bigger than yours. They'd enlarge the borders of their garments. They loved the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greeting in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren, brothers and sisters. John the Baptist called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Now you've got to suggest to yourself, you know, it's an interesting start to a sermon. You brood of vipers. But they knew where they stood. My wife likes to speak very uh, frankly to people. And uh, sometimes I think, you know, there are times when we need to be reminded of that. But John the Baptist stood up and he said, you brood of vipers. Because he knew that why they were there was not the right reason. And it wasn't just John the Baptist that used that phrase. Our Lord Jesus used the same term in Matthew 12, 34. But it's important that we recognize that this didn't mean that all the Pharisees were like this. And the evidence would suggest, and, and friends, this is where it gets closer to home. Because this guy Nicodemus was different. And this should cause us concern. Because the interview that we have here with Nicodemus is exactly the same interview that Jesus has with you and I. You see, I would suggest that from the scriptures that uh, Justin read to us, that Nicodemus was deeply sincere. He was sincere in his quest for the truth. He came to find out. So the first comparison that we could make to ourselves this evening is simply this. Are you sincerely looking for the truth? Or are you like Benjamin Franklin? You're content with a partial truth, which is no truth, and in fact becomes a lie. As I said earlier, Nicodemus was one of 72 men who made up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Now, he could have gone along with the others. There were two of them, as we know, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They they took the body of Jesus from the cross and they buried it. But, you know, they could have gone along with the other 70. And what were the other 70 doing? They were looking for ways to murder Jesus. They were looking for ways to kill him. 
They were concerned that what Jesus was saying was going to take away from them the privileges that they had, the comfortable lifestyle that they had. But Nicodemus saw the miracles and he knew that this man, Jesus, was from God. And so he had to find out. He could have kept his head down. Sometimes asking questions gets you into trouble, doesn't it? You know, keep quiet. But he couldn't keep quiet. Because he had to start making an investigation. Why? Because he'd heard about Jesus. He'd seen what Jesus was doing. And he knew that Jesus was not just another teacher. Another preacher. And of course that reminds us that Nicodemus himself was a teacher. But he saw that Jesus was different. And because he was different... Nicodemus needed to have the truth. Do you want to find out the truth? Or are you afraid of what other people will say about you and think about you? Are you afraid to be called a born-again Christian? You might appear on Facebook if you don't watch out. Are you afraid? Are you afraid what friends will say if you start talking about a real relationship with Jesus? Are you afraid what your family will say? And so we can begin to see the similarities here because many of us are good people. And we know that there is something about Jesus that we need to investigate and find out. But maybe we're afraid to take the step and to find out. Now we're told that Nicodemus came at night to Jesus. Now sometimes I think we can read too much into this. Perhaps he was afraid that other people would see him. Maybe it's just that Jesus was always busy Maybe it was the only time that Nicodemus could find to be able to meet with Jesus. So we don't really know all the answers. Perhaps it was just the cool of the night. And during the day, you know, he wanted a decent conversation. And so he waited for the cool. We don't know, but maybe he was afraid of what others would say. I think it's quite interesting that uh, you notice that it is... Uh, a plural pronoun, we, that is used. Maybe, just maybe, Nicodemus was representing the rest of the Sanhedrin council. They weren't going to go and meet with Jesus. And perhaps they looked at all of them and thought, well, he's, he's the best behaved of the bunch. Let's send him. He can go and find out for us. We don't know these things, but just maybe. But that's what was being and taking place here. So we come from these opening verses and we can safely conclude that Nicodemus was a man of high moral character because we know who he was. 
We also know that he had a deep religious hunger. There's no doubt about that. The scriptures explain who he was. But now we come to the elephant in the room. He was profoundly spiritually blind. And out of all the people walking up and down that street, out of all the people in Jerusalem at that time, he was supposed to be the one who wasn't blind. He was supposed to be the one who could see. He was supposed to be the one that had the spiritual insight. His education would have enabled him to have known the scriptures, the Old Testament. He should have known who Jesus was. He couldn't see the light. And now we begin to see why we have to ask ourselves these questions. Because you could be somebody who knows more about religion and Christianity, church history, doctrine, and everything, more than I know. But it won't save you. And this brings us to the second question. Are you blind to Jesus? Are you blind to who Jesus is? You know about him, but you don't know him. You could answer all the questions. You can play Bible trivial pursuit, but you don't know Jesus. You can live in a certain way, but you don't know really why you live that way. You see, the reality is is that Nicodemus, for some of us, could be our twin brother. Because we can relate to him so well. You've had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian family. Or a family that called itself Christian. You've had the privilege of going to church. Maybe the gospel wasn't preached as it should be. But the scriptures were read and you've listened to them and you know the scriptures. These are privileges. But you don't know why. Well, Nicodemus talks about the signs and the wonders and concludes that Jesus is a teacher or a rabbi who has come from God. Saw that in verse 2. And of course, he's right about this. But Jesus instantly replies to him. Without any direct, apparently direct, connection between the questions that he asks... And Jesus replies to him and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when you think about it, from a human perspective, that's got to be one of the most inappropriate statements that Jesus could ever have made to him. Because if anybody could see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus could. You know, the, the other guys in the marketplace, you could understand that they couldn't. But Nicodemus knew it all. 
He'd had all the privileges. So how dare Jesus say to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All his religiosity was nothing. He knew it all, but he could not see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus looks at Nicodemus. He stares him in the eyes. And he says, you must be born again. It's interesting that Jesus uses the example of birth, isn't it? Why would he use that? Because it covers everything. It was also a subject that all of us know at least something about. <laughs> Even the guys here know something about birth. <laughs> I wasn't able to attend the birth of our last little girl because it was a crash C-section. And I just remember driving up to London thinking, can I go faster? Should I stay at a sensible speed? But in my mind's eye, I knew what was taking place. Because I know what birth is about. And Nicodemus knew what birth was about. And when you hold that newborn baby, we couldn't hold ours for a while because she was premature. But when you hold a newborn baby, it smells new. Forget the other part, but it smells new. And it is new. And so Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand what it meant. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you know what birth is. You've been born of the flesh. But Nicodemus, if you want to go to heaven, your flesh is not going to take you. And we've spoken about this before. Our origin determines our destination. If we're born in this world and we have no relationship with God, our origin determines that we spend eternity away from God in hell. But if you've been born again, your origin changes. Because all of a sudden, you've been taken from this world and you've been translated, you've been placed into the kingdom of heaven. Your origin has changed. And because you're from heaven, you will return to heaven. And so our eternity begins the day we're born. Born again, that is. And that's what Nicodemus needed. 
It's interesting that the word again used here also means, when you look at the uh, uh, Strong's Concordance and stuff, it means from above. So if you want to go to heaven, then Jesus says you have to be born from above. And so the final question I bring to you now, are you born from above? Do you know that you have been born supernaturally from above? Now, I've found out that when you ask this question to people, isn't it fascinating the answers that you get? Are you born again? Are you a believer? And one of the strange answers that you quite often get from people is, is this. They start talking about their family. No, 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 I didn't talk or ask you the question about your mum or your dad. But they'll say to you something like this, well, my mum went to church. So? How's that going to help you? My granddad was the leading elder of the Brethren Assembly in Eddington in Somerset in England. Everybody knew who he was. Does that save me? No, it doesn't save me. And then they go on and they start talking about, this is a classic, I've been baptized. <laughs> I'm okay. I was baptized as a baby. I've got a photograph of it. I'm a good Anglican. That'll save me. No, it won't. I've done confession of faith. I've said everything they asked me to say. They even let me get married because I asked. Well, it might let you get married, confession of faith, in the church, but it won't get you into heaven unless you've confessed faith in Jesus Christ and you've been born again. You see, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Jesus was just talking to Nicodemus here. That was all about him. I'm different. No, you're not. You're the same. Jesus is talking to you. And as you read the Bible, Jesus is speaking. But are you listening? Horatio Bonner wrote, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living water thirsty ones stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched. My soul revived. And now I live in him. And his hymn was based on Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, which says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And Jesus still gently calls all people, everywhere, to come to him and rest.
to come to him for peace. To come to him for the assurance that you're safe in his hands and he loves you and he will never ever let you go. John 3 verse 15 that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Friends, what's stopping you? Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it just pig-headedness? I'm not going to give in. When I go to funerals and the opening song is Elvis Presley singing, I'll do it my way. Go on, then you do it your way. See how far you get. I'm glad I'm not doing it my way. I've already made a complete botch of it. But if I do it his way, <laughs> hallelujah, what a savior. Do you see it now? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the one he loved, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's you and me, friends. You can be saved. Call to him.